All right, cats and kittens, we are back with another special metal episode of the Brando Cast. Here's the deal: I am helping out on an outside project, not a Brando Cast project, but uh, a project about glam metal in Los Angeles, specifically the glam metal that was featured on the Sunset Strip in the early to mid '80s, which of course begat the hair metal scene that took over the Sunset Strip in the late '80s. And so I've been reaching out to my buddy Kevin via text and some phone calls because I just wanted to pick his brain for certain things, for certain details, for his insights on certain bands, because this motherfucker lived it. (laughs) This is not a guy who just does metal. This is a fucking guy who, as a young dude, was playing in the very same clubs we're going to talk about fucking today. So I thought we got to fucking just record these conversations and get back to it for his second time on the Brando cast. Ladies and gentlemen, please give a big KNAC welcome to Kevin Rankin. Pure rock. Turn the dial and rip the knob off. <laughs> if it's too loud, you're too old. I know where that came from. I have a t-shirt that said that. Um, <laughs> were you a KNAC fan back in the day? I was, yeah. KNAC was um, something that was, uh, God, uh, I feel like lucky. To, I think we were all lucky to, to have that because you, you weren't finding out about, um, you found out about all these bands on KNAC and all this music that you would not hear ever on KLOS or KMET or whatever, or K-Rock. You know, uh, when Kevin was on uh, the Brando cast before, we talked about Kiss and mm-hmm. we talked a lot about Kevin's early days as a young kiss fan but at some point that young kiss fan decides that he's gonna go for it so before we get into the (laughs) some of the glam metal music that we're gonna listen to today tell me how young a young burbank dude decides to really fucking give it a try what were Mm -hmm. those early steps that you made on your journey to the mountaintop yeah early steps they were early for sure. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, it's starting with kiss is like, is perfect, you know, because I, <clears throat> I, I was thinking about this conversation and thinking about, you know, what, what a precursor and gateway kiss was for, for sp- kind of a specific for guys, our age, I guess I, I, I put bands together in, in like, well, grade school. Uh, I put a band together and I had a band in high school. Um, and then, you know, right out of high school, I, I I was going to a bunch of concerts and shit like, you know, cause we had, you know, you know, the, the, the lore of scream for me, long beach and all this stuff that was, you know, what is this long beach place? We went to so many long beach shows and that's when KNAC kind of was, was, was coming up. And, uh, so I got, I got a buddy from high school and I said, Hey, I think I can write songs at this point. And, um, uh, I really love this new band Hanoi Rocks that I just discovered from Finland. That you would have to only get their albums in as imports in, in Moby Disc or Vinyl Fetish or one of these stores. And and let's you know, but I'm too scared to sing. So you be you be the singer because you, you know <laughs> you're that guy that can walk into a room and and act like you know the lead singer and and I'm not. And so I'll play guitar and let's let's do a band. So we booked ourselves at the Troubadour. Uh, at like 18 years old, I think I just turned 18, and uh, you know we sp- we spoke about this. This was in a I felt like the the slate or whatever had just been wiped clean, and all kinds of crazy shit was about to happen. Uh, like there was going to be a rebirth on that scene, and and we were just spectators, teenagers. You know, we we were a little young for it all. Okay, what was the name of that band? That's the first question. Then the the second question is, how do you get an unknown band to get a gig at the Troubadour? And what year is this? I think I think we played our first gig there. I want to say it was like December. I remember a flyer. I think that it was December '84. Wow, was our first gig there. Wow, and like at that time uh, you know the troubadour th- that whole wave had just come through and left motley crew dokken rat the wasp. early the er- wasp the early mm-hmm. 80s metal bands that came after van halen correct and quiet riot Cor- correct uh, that we were a little too young and a little too catholic school to have participated in you know at that age um 
And so, uh, yeah, I mean, we, it's funny. There was, I can remember, I, I'm friends with the woman on Facebook. <laughs> she, her name's Gina Bar, Barsamian or something. And she is, she booked the Troubadour. Um, I'm going to, she'll love this shout out. I'm going to let her know. But she booked the Troubadour uh, back in those days. And um, the Troubadour, I don't ever remember a national act coming to the Troubadour during that time. For those couple of years, it was not, there may have been like some KCME or some alternative nights occasionally, barely. But the real thing was these metal bands that were from Orange County or the Valley, Hollywood, or they'd moved here or whatever, that kind of dressed like Judas Priest and they were playing there. So we, we had, I think we had a demo tape. We made a demo tape and I was remembering this the other day that we, I think we made a demo tape with our old English teacher from high school who I think his name was Mr. Um, like McAllister or something. I can't remember his name, but uh, yeah. And we went to his house and he had like a tiny studio with like a Fostex eight track or something. And we laid down these songs that were just hilarious. I was just trying to play guitar, like a Motley Crue song basically. And <clears throat> one was called Little Teaser. That was the yeah. first one. Ooh, <laughs> you little teaser. You know, it was really, really out to get her, you know. Um, and, She's a teaser. Gonna please her. Yeah. <laughs> Ain't no way I'm gonna leave her. <laughs> right. Yeah, right? It's, it's, it's build, I don't know. I don't block. know how that goes, but I, I, a little teaser could have been a Kiss or a Motley Crue song. For, for sure. sure. For, for sure. <laughs> Probably is. Um, Wait, yeah, what so, was the fucking name of this band? What was the name oh, of this band? Oh, yeah, band? We, we, we were called Shell Shock. Yes. Shell Shock. And we spelled yes. it weird. That was uh -huh. a big problem because no one, everybody, we spelled it S-H-E-L-S-H-O-C. Mm -hmm. uh, because <laughs> it, it again, it looked like Motley Crue or Rat with two T's mm -hmm. or something. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. everybody was doing that. You know, people were using the omelots and all this shit. And so I made up a little logo and we were shell shock and, but people would get the flyer all drunk and be like shell shoe. They would, they think the C was an, uh, uh, you know, so it was really confusing. And you know, the, the things where you're just like, you know, if I could have changed anything, you know, it would have made it easier for people. But um, yeah, so we, we just started playing and I, I had my mom take me to, uh, well, I guess I was, I think she took me because she was buying it, but she bought me like some spandex pants that were like <laughs> that had uh, that had like zebra stripes and shit on them. Yeah, and yeah, I, did. I had to I needed those for my first gig. And uh, oh, yeah, so, <laughs> do you remember where you went and bought those zebra yeah, of course, spandex? Of course, there was a store called uh, Dynamite Boutique and uh, Infamous. Where was that? Like, really? Where was that? Uh, I I believe there was one on. Hollywood Boulevard at one time, but there must have been like a Woodland Hills location <laughs> because because someone saw the opportunity, you know. But well, the Valley needs metal too, so come on. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, and it, it got metal, you know. Yeah, and it, it got did. metal. Well, that's where that's where the teenage fan base is. Um, that's amazing. Um, okay, so Shell Shock. So you you somehow you magically get a gig at the Troubadour. Yeah. And like, like midnight on a Tuesday. Yeah. <laughs> For real. <laughs> Not even um, kidding. <laughs> I'm sure. Okay. Yeah. So, so do you just invite all your friends? Do you fly her up your old neighborhoods? Like what, what do you, do you dare go onto the sunset strip and put shell shock flyers up, uh, you know, during the flyer wars when bands would take yeah. each other's flyers down or what, what, how did you get people to that first shell shock gig? It was a bunch of friends, you know, it was just, we just called friends. Uh, I believe my parents were there uh, <laughs> and uh, I'm sure they were rock and um, roll. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, and, and this, uh, you talk, and the strip, this was the Troubadour. So like mm -hmm. um, if people listen to you from out of town or whatever, the, the Troubadour is not on the strip, but associated with it, of course. And yeah. Um, and the strip at that time, the whiskey was closed. I, I don't know. I can't remember the story. But for a couple of years, it was like the whiskey was closed. And I remember when it reopened. I'll tell you about that if you want. But uh, And uh, the Roxy was seemed like just national acts that would play there only, it seemed like. Mm -hmm. um, and the Rainbow was for, you know, we weren't drinking age, so we weren't going to the Rainbow. And uh, Gazzari's was like a 
you know, wet t-shirt contest or something. I don't even know what was happening there. (laughs) (laughs) Um, that's amazing. Um, uh, and how did that gig end for you guys? I just remember, like, I, I can remember being so nervous and, um, and just so high, just like, oh my God, the feeling of, and again, the Troubadour didn't have, we weren't even so aware of the history or cared at that point, because of course, at that point, I don't even think like Guns N' Roses or any of those bands had got on that stage yet. Um, so it wasn't like people would think about it now, you know, uh, it was more like, oh yeah, the Doors played here a long time ago. Oh the Eagles used to drink in the bar or some shit. It was like that kind of a thing. But then there was the metal bands that we talked about that played there. I don't think Wasp played there a lot. I I, I wonder how many times Motley Crue actually played there um, and Rat. It, I think they were going to the Starwood and places like that. Um, well, the amazing thing to me about the Troubadour, and then we're about to get into Kevin Rankin's uh, little metal mix. Some songs that he sent me, they're evocative of this era. But the weird thing about the Troubadour is, as you were saying, like, this is a, a place where Elton John broke in America. This is a yeah. place that Linda Ronstadt made famous, that singer-songwriters in the early 70s and that Laurel Canyon sound, you know, a lot of those acts were happening at the, the Troubadour. Not only uh, are the Eagles hanging out at the bar, the early versions of the Eagles are playing there. Lion Eyes is about... Um, you know, uh, losing your woman to a sugar daddy over at Dantana's. That's right. You know, after she leaves you at the bar uh, hmm. and goes back to her real apartment in Beverly Hills, paid for by a rich dude. Um, but it's weird that they had metal bands to me, you know, knowing the history of that place. Like, I guess there was a gap in L.A. and they just filled that hole a little mm-hmm. bit because the Starwood closed in the early 80s. Because of the Wonderland murders, correct? I, That's a I whole that. other weird story. You know, I, I had Iris yeah. Berry on the podcast, and okay. she tied she tied the closing of the Star Wars to the famous murders that happened in Laurel Canyon uh, in the early eighties. Was that because of the the owners or something? It was because or, of the owners. Yeah, I, I I heard that story, but again, before my time. Yeah, yeah, but it's weird that it's weird that metal bands played there. Um, but mm-hmm. thank God, because Shellshock needed a place to play. Did you print T-shirts for that first show? Uh, not the first one. I don't think we we probably we had them we had them soon after because I actually uh, I'll I'll take a photo of it. I have a T-shirt that somebody gave me. Like, hey, you're not going to believe what I have. They mailed it to me, and it's it's the old Shellshock T-shirt uh, with the with that logo that I designed and. There was a guy uh, in a band called Rockway, uh, a, a local, <laughs> a local uh, band, and they were from the valley. They were they were really popular and older than us. And that guy made T-shirts like in his garage. So um, he he's like, yeah, you kids come over, and I'll we'll make some T-shirts. You give me two hundred dollars or whatever it was. So I have a T-shirt. Kevin, what does up around the bend mean to you? And I need you to Kevin Splain, Hanoi Rocks, for the people listening to the podcast. Well, you know, you you asked me about four or five songs that reminded me. So I, I tried to be just really in the moment. And that flew into my head first because I feel like, well, it's it's I, I think I would just say it's, it's fact that they were so... Uh, uh, integral to to the what was going to become the glam rock scene they were s- they really kicked the door open in the most underground way so i think it's more for me it's more what what hanoi represented to to that scene which was like again like my okay my experience is like i feel like a fly on the wall of that whole thing i was not necessarily in cool circles or i wasn't hanging out with, uh, I wasn't like hanging out in the streets of Hollywood. So what, what, but what I saw was right after everybody saw that Hanoi rocks was uh, Hanoi rocks came on, um, that song up around the bank came on. I think it was Richard blades afternoon 
the DJ, K-Rock DJ, he had a video show that might have been 30 minutes on Channel 13, maybe after school or something. Like, I want to say it was 4.30 p.m. And <laughs> and he, I, I don't really remember hearing Hanoi Rocks on, on K-Rock back then, but but he played the video. And, and I, I, I remember seeing it for the first time. I think everybody found out who Hanoi was from maybe Richard Blade playing them um, on that video show because we didn't have the magazines like that. You know, like, like we didn't, there was no such thing as um, the, the metal magazines hadn't really been invented yet, you know, necessarily, or at least like the ones that ended up having all those bands that followed in them, you know, uh, the ones that you probably saw in Albuquerque in the Seven Eleven that, that got yeah, you. Cir- yeah. Circus and Hit Parader and Cream. Right. Those were around. Yeah. I mean, those were always around actually. Um, <clears throat> but I think they just had like the, the big boys in them, you know, the classics. And I, I didn't learn about many new bands, you know, other than maybe Iron Maiden or some of that new wave that was starting to happen. Right. So yeah, Hanoi uh, was, so to the, the person that isn't, isn't familiar, I mean, if you can like, if you've ever seen a really early picture of Guns N' Roses, it's kind of what Hanoi Rocks looked like. And they brought this I think they were just such an important part to uh, these hard lines that were drawn in music at the time, uh, to those lines being blurred, to where punk rockers, alternative rockers, kind of goth rockers from the early 80s and stuff, and rocker rockers, (laughs) people that would, I don't know, be, you know, that grew up listening to rock like you and I, whatever, uh, would, would start to come together on things. And, um, so Hanoi, I, was parts, uh, they were, they were part Ramones and somehow part like really the dirtiest era of the Rolling Stones. And the singer, Mike, Mike Monroe was, I mean, the prettiest girl you had ever seen, you know? (laughs) Um, and, and we all wanted to be him, you know, like we, that's what it was. And, and when I say that stuff about like those early bands that that followed that, you know, the the Guns N' Roses, the all of them, the LA Guns, the Faster Pussycat, you know, um, which uh, really, if you squint your eyes in a Faster Pussycat photo from the early, from the, the mid '80s, it looks like Hanoi Rocks. And um, so I, I don't think anybody would ever deny the influence. So so that was huge for what for what it stood for. And, and then just like to make the story really quick, the, or longer, whatever the, uh, you know, Razzle, the drummer died in this car crash. Vince Neil was driving the car from Motley Crue, right? They were about to play the palace in Hollywood and everybody that was interested in that scene that was about to come above ground above, uh, was going to be at that show. And like, that was the most anticipated show, uh, in that, and it felt like it was, it was, it felt like it was an LA scene brought on by this Finnish band. And that, that was my experience. I mean, I don't know if everybody's, <laughs> you know, but yeah. Okay. Well, let me just say for the top secret project that I'm helping out with and bringing my metal knowledge and a little bit of research to this project, so many people from the glam, the hair, and the early, uh, the early Sunset Strip scene, they all talk about Hanoi Rocks as you did. The fashion, the songs, the blurred lines, they were just such a special band that never got to break nationally. I think MTV did play like a, like a video early on. Might have yeah. been up around the bend. I remember seeing it. But it was taken away. And I'll Brendan's playing for people listening mm-hmm. uh, at home. December 1984, Vince Neil and the uh, Hanoi Rocks drummer Razzle had been drinking all day long at a party down in the South Bay. They went to get booze later in the evening. Vince Neil hit another car on the PCH. They were flying. Instantly killed uh, Razzle and severely uh, injured the two passengers uh, in the other vehicle who you know, had life-threatening injuries and eventually died years later. But Vince Neil did not go to prison because his lawyers were essentially able to negotiate a settlement in to say to uh, the judge and jury, this man can generate the income that these uh, victims need if he stays out of prison. And that was how that settlement went down. But you describing 
the loss of that critical show that would have happened mm-hmm. at the Palace on Hollywood and Vine, mm-hmm. which was such a great place to see bands now, the Avalon. Um, wow. And I bet everyone's heart was like, I'm sure people couldn't even figure out that he was gone. Yeah, it was it was a huge hit to uh, to that scene that I was starting to like, you know, dip my feet in, and you know, like I, I I've I've talked to friends about this, like you know, there's this idea. Well, would would Hanoi Rocks have gone on to taken that Guns N' Roses glory or whatever, you know? Um, and I don't I don't necessarily. I just think I I really believe, and I think if those guys were in, in the room right now, they would say like we probably wouldn't exist without Hanoi rocks, you know, um, or at least not in the way that they did. And, and I, I keep going to GNR cause I, I guess they were really, really the most like explosive, powerful part of that whole thing. And they obviously had like the goods in every department, you know, and Hanoi might've just carried on to be, uh, well, like, like they, like they do, like Michael Monroe kept playing through the years. Guns and Roses. What does "Out to Get Me" mean to you? Uh, again, like these, you know, these were songs. I don't know if they're like my favorite songs from each band or anything like that, but it's the one that stands out. And for me, this is kind of back backtracking my Guns and Roses history or whatever. Uh, I there was a moment where um, I went to see Guns and Roses at Perkins Palace. Right? Um, where was that? that w- well, Perkins Palace was a uh, beautiful, beautiful venue in uh, Pasadena, California that uh, ended up being, I think it was originally the Raymond Theater, then it became the Raymond Theater again. And there was a lady, um, a promoter named Gina Zamparelli, who was just like, yeah, and, she, and, and rest in peace. She was, she was amazing. She, she was really crucial to the early um, metal scene and, and promoting bands like Armored Saint and Odin and Wasp and uh, uh, Steeler and, and, you know, these bands that were uh, trying to think of some other ones, but yeah. So she was a big part of that. So she tried to preserve the uh, Perkins Palace, which became the Raymond Theater later. But in this, like, um, I think it was like the last hurrah of, the per- of Perkins Palace where bands had stopped playing there. Um, beautiful, historic vaudeville theater is what it was. Um, like really hundred years old at the time, right? And, um, so Guns N' Roses did these like three or four shows right at the time when they weren't just going to, they weren't going to be back anymore, you know? So it was really kind of a, a launch, you know, because it's, I, I, I feel like right after those shows is when you started to see, like, when we saw that Paradise City video on MTV and then you just felt like, oh shit, you know, they are, they're the new Aerosmith. They are just the Kings and they were the Kings of that scene, no doubt. Um, but so I remember being in that, I went to that show without a ticket and, uh, my truck had been stolen from Los Feliz where I was living. Uh, this is, this is early, early Los Feliz days. Um, I bar, I borrowed my friend's, uh, truck and I drove down there and I saw Gina standing out, out front and, and she's like, Kevin, what are you doing? There's a big line down the sidewalk and, 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 and I'm just hi. And she's like, come on. And she walked me in to this show. Whoa. <laughs> yeah. And, um, I, this must've been 87 and like appetite probably had just come out, I'm guessing. And, uh, so, but I remember that the moment in that show where it's funny is Steven Adler had br- broken his hand or something. And I think Fred Curry from Cinderella was playing drums Oh wow! Uh, in a last minute thing. But, you know, they did these four, three or four nights and they had their friends open. Like one night was faster for cat. One night was junkyard. One night was whoever, you know, um, might've been LA guns. I don't know. Um, 
uh, but there was a moment in that show where where they played that song, and it was just the whole banana, 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 and I was like, you know, I I felt like that guy, that cheesy guy back in Rolling Stone history or whatever. Uh, like I've seen the future of rock and roll, you know, and it's and its name is, and that's that was that moment, wow. and and I wow. thought, I thought, well, the, a they're they're not ours anymore. And, um, mm. you felt lucky to be in that room, I think, mm. you know? Wow. That's incredible. I want to, um, I want to Brendan explain guns and roses for people listening. And then I want to get your take, <laughs> take on that. But quick, quick question. Just answer it. Where was that shitty apartment in Los Feliz? Oh, fuck. Um, okay. I lived, I lived on Clayton, mm-hmm. you know, Clayton near uh-huh. Talmadge. Yep. It, that was, that was a little house that we rented, uh, four of us. In a little tiny house, we paid like nine hundred dollars for, you know. <clears throat> um, uh, yeah, and, and because the reason I ask is that area anymore. You ain't getting a house for nine hundred bucks a month. No way. No, no way. No, that yeah. has that has become sitcom writer city. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that, that entire area is nothing but affluent fucking kids working in Hollywood. Yeah. Okay, so. Here's the thing I wanted to say about Guns N' Roses, and I want to get your take on it. The interesting thing about Guns N' Roses is that Guns N' Roses is a hybrid band. It's a hybrid band of locals and a hybrid band of people coming in from outside of Los Angeles to try to find fame and fortune on the Sunset Strip. So you have Slash and Steven Adler went to Bancroft Middle School in Hollywood, Santa Monica and Highland people. And then Slash, of course, went to uh, Fairfax High School with Tracy Guns. I don't know if Steven Adler went to tri- uh, Fairfax. I don't think he did. But Slash goes to Fairfax. So they're local dudes. And then you have Axel and Izzy from elsewhere, from Indiana, and Duff McKagan from the punk scene in Seattle. So the fact that they all found each other, to me, is a very interesting part of the Guns N' Roses story. They're all in different bands that are struggling to keep things together. You know, Axel Rose is in a very early version of he had a band called Hollywood Rose. Tracy Guns was in an early version of Guns N' Roses. You know, there was a lot of cross pollinations with it, but when they found that classic lineup, did you get to see all that coming together? Was that interesting to you? Yeah, super interesting. Um, I mean, those are the guys that, I mean, you know, again, we were a couple years younger than those guys. And that felt like a, a, a lot, you know, at that yeah. time. We, we were these. Uh, suburban kids from you know the, these safe neighborhoods in the in the San Fernando Valley, going over the hill into Hollywood, which was five miles away, but seemed was a whole other world. And those guys um, were either, like you said, <clears throat> from out of town, sleeping on some apartment floor in Hollywood, or they grew up in Hollywood. And <clears throat> there's a sexiness and a danger and all that shit that goes with that. And you know, for us you know, uh, we were kind of the weekend warrior type, you know, or whatever we'd get out there and see these bands at, at the Troubadour, or, uh, there was a place called the Stardust Ballroom, which is where, um, and there was a club next to it called the fetish club and, or, or was it next to it or inside of it? I can't even remember, but it's where home Depot on, on sunset and Western is now. <laughs> right. Uh, but like, um, yeah, I saw so, Nine Inch Nails there when I first moved to L.A. And then they oh, yeah, t- yeah, yeah. tore that place down. Yeah, right. I remember that place. So, so I saw Guns N' Roses there in like 1986, I want to say. Wow. I, I, have the, I have this really interesting night that happened to me. Um, and I remember so much about it because I sort of met these exceptional people all in one night. So I, I was out there. We were. It was early on where I was promoting my my band shell shock, right? I was standing in front of this because you just got, you would go to these shows. Okay. And I had a backstage, like a, Oh, I got that later. Someone, I don't know where I got that, but I had this sticker and it was, the show was basically headlined as like, I don't even know if poison was at the top of it. It might've been like Mary Poppins <laughs> with a Z, uh, Ruby slippers, um, who was super glam, like literally wore like lace and, and like the heaviest makeup, like, you know, um, and, uh, um, Mary Poppins, Ruby slippers, poison. Um, Oh, the Joneses, I think were on that bill, uh, which was a very important band to that scene. I I think, um, 
a precursor to you know that stuff and guns and roses okay this and it was a for whatever reason it, it said a benefit for jerry's kids i don't know what that was all about but they were they might have raised a couple hundred dollars and but so i went to this show i was passing out flyers out in front i i out in front i passed a flyer to a girl that would become my girlfriend for the next five years i had kind of made an arrangement to sneak in there somehow because i didn't have a ticket i don't know why it was so hard to get in places but we'll talk about that but i think i just didn't have money or something i didn't know anybody and i could i was young and i, I was like 18 standing there and the sunset fucking and it was not <laughs> this was like a dirty dirty a dirty east hollywood sunset like you, yeah. you didn't want to fuck oh, yeah. around this is like you know, yeah. walks up on St. Andrews kind of lore, you know, stuff. For and, real. I, yeah, for real. When I when I heard that song for the first time, Quick Tangent, I was like, he's talking about a girl who's a junkie who lives literally at Fountain in St. Andrews. <laughs> right, right, right. So that's, okay. yeah. So back to I, that. I just pictured that whole crossover, the freeway yeah. section, right? No okay. question. But, um, and so I met the girl that would become my, my girlfriend for the next five years. I met, um, I had somehow arranged to meet uh, Bobby from the band Poison. I was going to come go in there and meet him and, and give him like a demo tape to try and get on a show. Uh, Cause I had, to- I had run into him somewhere and said, you know, I got a band and he said, well, bring me a tape or something. So I went back when I, sn- I one of the guys in Ruby slippers snuck me into that show into the back. <laughs> and, uh, and so I, I, I basically walked through there. I walked up to the front of it. And there's some photos of this, of this gig and like the G, old GNR photo book thing. But, um, and there's Guns N' Roses on this stage. Um, all the other bands had played, I think. Uh, and I was like, oh, okay, that's that Guns N' Roses band. And then Axel had these assless chaps on, like leather, you know, like, like the David Lee Roth style, whatever. Jim Dandy, whoever started that shit, right? And mm-hmm. um, he was wearing those. And I was like, that's his actual ass. Like that's wow. You know, (laughs) and these guys look cool and dangerous as fuck. Right. Oh. And the reason my girlfriend came up and talked to me, because I had a a pin on of Michael Monroe from Hanoi. I had a Hanoi rocks pin on my, and she's like, Oh, blah, 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 blah. And I was like, yeah, you know, yeah. Yeah. So being at that show, uh, and then I ended up meeting Bobby and from, from, from poison. And then when I left that show, me and my friend Alfie, who was a singer of shell shock, uh, we were outside and we met these two guys were walking down the street, giving us flyers. And they gave us a flyer for this band called plain Jane. And, uh, we're like, we're like, Oh, Hey, they're like, yeah, we just moved here from Pittsburgh. I want to say, and we're kind we kind of know the guys in poison cause they were from Pittsburgh and, um, um, like, okay, cool. Yeah. Um, like, yeah, uh, I'm, yeah, my name's Janie and Oh, my name's, uh, sticky, you know, or whatever sticky sweet. And it was Janie and and Stephen who would have been in who would have been who would be in Warrant in like another year they were going to be in Warrant, which was a band that existed already. But so it was all it was this all in one night, like the kind of things you, you say. What if I didn't go to that place that one night? I don't even know what the question was or whatever. That's just a funny story about the Stardust. Okay, so you brought up poison. What does number one bad boy mean to you? We okay, we went to go see poison a million times. I mean we, we were always going to poison shows because that was like kind of where the party was. And they were Why? Why? They were super exciting. Uh, mm-hmm. for what was for, you know, we talk about this all the time. Everything is in relation to to what was happening at that time. You know, like I think people would be like, oh, fucking poison. Are you kidding me? Or that kind of stuff, right? Um, but like during that time when everybody I said was wearing like spikes and sort of tight ass looking like they were some guy that auditioned for Judas Priest. Um, and these guys from out of town come here. Uh, they're living in some warehouse. There it was like this mystique about them. They 
are wearing more makeup than you've ever seen anybody wear. Their hair is like crazy out to here, right? They, um, they are everywhere every night promoting their band. Uh, so diehard. Um, and wow. the stories of, of all these girls that like, oh, the girls supported them and brought them groceries. And I, like, I almost think they kind of invented the, the rock guy living off of the girls thing, you know, like they took it to a whole other level, <laughs> which was just such a, a way back then, you know, um, for guys to just, uh, you know, I mean, like I work delivery jobs and stuff, but other than that, you know, um, so poison was exciting I felt like it's not that like we knew all that much about the New York dolls, but I felt like, well, this is my, what the New York dolls must've been like when they came on the scene and everybody either wanted to like, uh, well, the girls love them. Right. Or, um, or like the metal guys would want to like kind of beat them up or something. But again, like back to that point about the, the lines getting blurred in high school, for me, it was like the first Motley Crue album, a bunch of heavy metal stuff. And then I had friends that were list that were listening to the circle jerks and the dead Kennedys and black flag and, uh, and going to those shows. And I had, I was getting longish hair at that point. And if you had long hair at one of those shows, like you were asking for it, you know? So it was, I don't know if people understand that. Um, there was a, a, a line of, of, of like this new punk rock thing. We just shaved our heads and broke our rush albums and we're devoting our life to this thing versus, uh, oh, you're still a rocker. You better just stay over there or else, you know, we're good. You fucking long hair, you know? So that, that, when that line started to get blurred, I think, I mean, and I'm just like, really, this is such a broad brush to paint over that. There's so no, I many, love it. I there's love so it. many, there's so many details that you, you probably spoke with, with Iris about, cause I know that she, I think she was, um, around for, uh, she probably spoke about that. Yeah, she did. Uh, she, I mean, her her take was very interesting because she actually felt like things were, you know, punkers are here, rockers are here. She said they would come together in very odd places. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and some of those blurred lines hap- happened at the Scream downtown, which was a mm-hmm. club that was a part of the glam metal scene, where mm-hmm. an early version of Jane's Addiction would play, or. Jet Boy or Guns N' Roses, uh, you know, because you think if you think about it, L.A. is not that big a place. And while Guns N' Roses is forming, the Chili Peppers are forming, too. Mm-hmm. You know, and actually they're actually getting going and Jane's Addiction is is getting going. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just a really fascinating period of time. But, yes, mm-hmm. it was stratified, although Iris Berry claims that she helped uh, the a very early version of Poison get into some some sort of housing in LA. Yeah. Because she also, and where lines would, would blur. Like she said, Duff was able to walk the line. Mm -hmm. Duff McKagan was because he was a punk rocker, but he was also in this great band. It's just so fascinating to me because, because LA is not a big place. Mm -hmm. Um, Where did you see, did you go to see poison when they would play at like the country club or do you remember some of the poison shows you saw? Of course. I mean, I want to say we saw everyone, you know, wow, yeah. uh, like, cause we would just, it was just the thing to do. And I, I want to just, uh, on, on what you were just saying, like, this is also the time when, um, you know, Metallica, right. About to come out with master of puppets. They were bringing all these influences that were, that were, uh, you know, you can't overemphasize, um, that like, uh, James Hetfield's wearing a, like a misfits t-shirt, you know, and, or GBH or something. So, it was almost like what Motorhead was doing and bringing punks and metal together uh, for years and years. I felt like these bands that it sounds so people think probably of poison and that fluffy thing, you know, that they were, but they really like at that time were these starving dudes that were throwing a bunch of makeup on like the New York dolls and uh, looking as much like girls as they could playing this, weird kind of poppy music that was probably closest to kiss or something meets the Bay city rollers. It, it seemed like, um, like if you said, Iris said people were coming together. I remember that feeling. I remember being in a place and at, at one of those spots was rock and roll Denny's, right? The, the place that was known as rock and roll Denny's where you'd go there afterwards. And all of those guys from those bands, you mentioned, uh, GNR had a rehearsal place right behind there behind guitar center. 
um, that they lived at or something or a couple of them. And I had friends of mine shared that space with them. Um, one of the guys uh, is dizzy that's in guns and roses for a long time now, but he, his old band. And so places like Denny's rock and roll Denny's, I, we would meet a group of girls that had just come from, from this super cool club called scream downtown, you know? And uh, again, we, I don't know what it was if we were too young or too suburban, but we, I wasn't going to scream till a couple years after that to the, the end of scream probably. Yeah. But the cult and people would play there like, and Jane's was that was that was their scene. Chili Peppers, like you said, yeah. Iris Berry on the podcast claims she takes credit for inventing the term rock and roll Ralphs, and I'll tell you why. Because they were one night they were at Rock and Roll Denny's, which was a Denny's that used to be on Sunset between Fairfax and La Brea. People uh, listening at home, but um, it's no longer there. It's the Aroma Cafe. Um, she claims that they were there one night and they were realizing that the liquor stores were about to close at two. <laughs> and she literally said to her friend, let's just go to rock and roll Ralph's thinking rock and roll Denny's. Right. And she says it's stuck. And I would love to give her credit for that. Um, I don't know if uh, you can confirm when you started hearing people use the term rock and roll Ralph's, but maybe you can shed a little bit of light on that. I'd say if it wasn't her, uh, it, like, like I'd say it was likely her. And if it wasn't her, it was someone just like her. You know? <laughs> um, it, it certainly, it certainly wasn't, um, it was someone, it was someone that, yeah, that's how it happened. No doubt. That's how it happened. Like, <laughs> well, she, she was funny because she would say that they used to make fun of like the young, the musicians Institute, which I think was called the guitar Institute back then. G I T or M I T. Yeah. yeah. M- which M-I, was, yeah. Uh, which is a little music school in Hollywood, but she claims that they used to make fun of all the kids that would live in that mm-hmm. neighborhood behind rock and roll Ralph's, you know, that's a Hollywood neighborhood. It's a dense apartment neighborhood. And she said they would make fun of all the kids that were walking back and forth to class with their, you know, their, vi- their soft guitar cases and stuff they're, like they're that with dreams, bag. with dreams <laughs> of being the next George Lynch or Randy Rhodes. Rankin, Decline of Western Civilization, Part 2, The Metal Years. What does Solar Eye by Odin, Odin, <laughs> Odin mean to you? Yeah, and, and a shout out to the Duncan brothers, uh, Jeff and Sean. Um, you know, the drummer and guitar player of Odin. Jeff is has been an armored saint for maybe 20 years now. And um, and Sean is, has been in LA Guns for the last year, I think. Oh yeah, Odin. Um, you know, uh, th- this was before the metal years. I, I felt like we we discovered this band Odin that was from Glendale. You know, <laughs> and because we 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 we, <laughs> uh, we we were from neighboring Burbank, basically, and uh, like this is exactly like there was a record store called the Turning Point in Glendale that was half head shop and bunch of cheap used records and there'd be flyers in there. And I remember picking up an Odin flyer and so someone, and I, and I looked at them and I was like, uh, these guys are super hot and have like super rad, heavy metal, long hair. Um, that's how I want to be. And then I asked, we had these heavy metal girls in our school, a couple of them that were kind of too young to be sneaking out, but hanging out with the likes of, of, the band the rats and things like you know when they were only 10th graders or something and um and and she was like oh yeah they're they're like they're like our age and they went to like glendale high or whatever it was and 
uh, they have the best parties and oh, the Odin boys are so cute and blah, blah, blah. But like, so Odin was like this local legend kind of, I, I, Van Halen was before my time, the backyard parties, the Pasadena, all that stuff. Um, I know my friends, older brothers and things went to those shows, you know, like the ice house or these places that were in Pasadena and stuff. Um, but Odin felt like, uh, uh, as far as a, a local band of, of, of guys that you were looking at going like, wow, how do they do it? Like that Odin was that for us. They were kind of like our Van Halen on the local level because they were making a big wave. Like they, they were making a big noise and, um, they, they were also metal. Um, they were like, they were like the first Iron Maiden album and I loved it. I thought, you know, down to like, it seemed like they had a real focus on what they were trying to be in the, in that very, the very beginning. And they made one, well, they made a, an EP or something that I, 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 that was just before I got into it. And they made a, another EP with six songs. It was a white vinyl. And it was called uh, "Don't Take No for an Answer," and that was their <laughs> that was their um, and like I I I went down to Music Plus in uh, Glendale when that went on sale, and I want to actually say Sean, the drummer, worked at Music Plus. Um, he can verify that, but uh, yeah, they played the country club and they would headline it, which was like nine hundred people, thousand people, whatever that was. They had fucking road cases that said Odin. They had like <laughs> it. I I just remember like being so jealous and so like, how do they do that? You know? And then of course people n- learned about Odin later nationally or whatever, because of the movie, um, which at that point I think they would tell you was kind of like on, on the way out. You know, I think they were kind of on the way out with internally as a band at that point. And I think they were also, they, they had they had gotten really influenced by the stuff that was exciting the the guns and roses and the things that were um actually making legit you know noise and i think they'd sort of said well maybe we ought to turn this metal thing that this like iron maiden killers thing into something more modern or something and and i, I they lost me at that and i i love you guys but you know and I still joke with them all the time. I fucking love Odin, you know? And it was just, it was, oh, I, I got to talk about the singer, Randy O. The impression, he, I was like, this is a metal god, this guy. <laughs> he would come out onto the stage at the country club and, and Solar Eye, I think they open with that. And if you play that shit, it's like the longest scream you've ever heard. And um, anyways, I just thought that was so much fun. Well, as Bill Gazzari says in the movie, Decline 2, uh, he's a good-looking guy. He's He's got a lot of girls on him, or whatever you said. Like, that's, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's pretty good, yeah. Well, people should know the movie Decline 2, or The Decline of Western Civilization uh, Part 2, The Metal Years, Penelope Ferris's phenomenal documentary chronicling not just the Sunset Strip, but metal, the state of metal in the late 80s, 87, 88. So by the time the movie comes out, Odin is featured in the movie as kind of an up-and-coming band in Los Angeles. Like that's how that's sort of the narrative of the movie, you know, and they're they're playing at Cazares and they're they're committed to success. But the fact that you said they were already struggling with that internal thing, there was probably a lot of pressure on them to go hair metal rather mm-hmm. than maiden metal. Because by 1987, 88 a lot of the cheese metal bands are starting to have hits with ballads and the whole thing in LA is getting crazy. More and more kids are coming from all over the country to try to make it in LA. And I bet every metalhead kid in Southern California uh, with a bit of a dream is also coming to the strip as well. So do you remember the glut of bands coming to the strip in the late eighties? I do for sure. I mean, that's, we were still out there, um, you know my band shell shock right we we had this run from about really eight, 84 to end of 84 but like 85 86 87 i think we stopped in 89 so we had like a five-year run right and it was just like this sort of uh this effort that just seemed like never it was never going to pay off you know we were constantly oh. pro- constantly promoting this and we we felt like you know that's all we had to do is just put more flyers out than the next band or whatever it was 
and uh, keep making these demo tapes, keep sending them to record companies. Um, but we, you know, uh, the bands that were exciting were getting record deals, and we were just kind of these kids from the valleys, the different valleys, you know, because um, San Gabriel Valley had its own scene too, as well. But uh, and a couple of us were from there. But um, what year did you move to LA? Eighty nine or ninety? Ninety. And I could, yeah. it was over then because I, over, yeah. when I first got here, I wanted to go to all those places as a metal fan. I wanted to go to Gazars. I wanted to go to the rainbow. I wanted to go to the whiskey. Uh, even the coconut teaser still was playing metal bands, but it was all cheese, all hair metal. My mm-hmm. metal was made in Dio Ozzy. So I, that, that's not the kind of metal that I would listen to, but I still want to go to those places. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I mean, well, the, the sunset strip, I guess like really it's, it's where that caricature of itself started, you know, like it's a time that a lot of people really glorify. uh, But I I can remember less and less like feeling um, or, or just like starting to pull away from it. Cause it it was flooded Mm. with like, this is when people talk, they they talk about um, they have that nostalgia for, Oh yeah, the strip, you couldn't even walk down the sidewalk and there was, flyers everywhere and the paper was everywhere <laughs> and you know and yeah you could you know meet girls and all, all the different stuff like that was um also of course as a result of local bands uh getting to play the roxy uh and the whiskey reopening and i remember a moment where guns and roses i don't know if they technically reopened it somebody i want to say like agent orange or some punk show that was there that uh, someone did but but like i remember uh, and then all of a sudden there was a full page ad uh, that said something like uh um oh when was the last time you saw a real rock and roll band at the whiskey a go-go and it said this could be your last chance and it had this little tiny gnr logo at the bottom of it it was a really powerful big full page black print you know and that's when the whiskey kind of got back on the map. Like they said, Hey, let's use this whiskey place. This, that the doors used to play and that's, or that the germs and stuff had people like that were playing in the early eighties, but something happened and it was closed for a long time. So when all that shit opened up again, it was, you know, we talked about this pay to play promoters and stuff. And so you could just be uh, a kid that was a, a jock from the Valley that decided to get a you know, grow your hair out and, pretend you have a band and that's what it, it seemed like that's what it all was i mean i, I don't want to there were guys that that came here with big dreams and i don't want to take away from that but there was a so much shit <laughs> that was out there it was so terrible for the most part and they could play because they would pay up front right. to play at the whiskey or places like that and and basically they had to like sell x number of tickets to make their money back is that how it worked yeah, these pay-to-play promoters would, um, you'd go meet with them and they'd give you 100 tickets to sell at maybe $8 a ticket. Uh, and you'd have to, you'd have to, uh, what, $800, you'd have to come back with $800 um, before, you, before you played that show. So you'd have people like, oh, my daddy's going to buy the tickets. It's okay. You know, I remember we did a show at the Roxy for one of those promoters and um they we didn't sell all our tickets and we so we like said oh here we got this here's like 500 bucks or something and here's the other 30 tickets we couldn't sell the other ones or whatever and this promoter uh, got one of her security bouncer guys and like took my singers uh like wireless mic that he had bought at guitar center with his own money and and like confiscated you know that and some other piece of equipment we had so like this one particular promoter was had i heard had a storage full of band gear that she would confiscate from bands that did not you know it it was it it became like um just the most upside down uh deal you know she would take gear if you didn't come up with enough cash to actually play the gig right right how could she do that well, you had a, a contract that said you're going to come back with $800 on gig oh, night. Oh, yeah. oh, wow. Holy shit. Yeah. And this, you know, this stuff had changed because if you could prove prior to the pay to play stuff, if you could prove you could bring in a crowd, the troubadour will have you back. And instead of playing midnight on the Tuesday, you'll play nine o'clock on the Wednesday. And then, and then finally a weekend. And that was the, 
I mean, all those bands did that. Guns N' Roses, uh, I didn't go to this one show, but my old drummer went to see them on the Tuesday night that they famously played the Troubadour. You know, and so bands could could build their followings that way. And if they couldn't, they just weren't going to get called back. So, but it wasn't such a such a thing of like, here you do all the work for us, just bring us cash, and I'll stamp my promoter logo on the fucking ad. You know, when I got here in 1990, I remember and just dig through the tunnels of your mind because I'm sure you you would see this billboard all the time. It seemed that there was a management company billboard. It was like on La Cienica and Holloway. And I think they had another one up on Sunset by Carney's, but it was clearly the kind of management company that was, or maybe it was the kid's dad, Hmm. but the guy that was always on these billboard looked exactly like that rich kid from Encino that you were talking about, you know, (laughs) doing a metal, you know, it was like a rich kid from Encino. He looked like Adam Levine from Maroon 5, didn't have a cool look, but had like a Charvel Jackson guitar. And the billboard would always feature him like upcoming gigs, Troubadour, Whiskey, or whatever. Mm -hmm. And I thought, I instinctually thought like, oh, that's what's happening here. Right. Yeah. Last question, and this is a fun one. Did you ever spend time at the Cat House? (laughs) Of course. Lots of time there. Yes. (laughs) I think the Cat House, um, it kind of took advantage of what was happening uh, that that's what made it a thing. I can remember, I can remember a GNR playing there and then like the, they played there again, right at the end of when they were about to take off. Cause that was like a hang. It started off at a place called Osco's. Yeah. The at, corner San, of, at San Vicente and Santa Monica. Yeah. There's like an Island. I don't know. Is that even still there? That Island? I don't know, but it's a CVS the, now. Okay, great. Of course, just like everything, just like that famous like uh, roller uh, roller rink on Santa Monica Boulevard. This, that was a CVS uh, flipper. Is that what it's called? Anyways, um, okay. Well, when I, I don't know when I first heard about the Cat House, it was uh, it was Tammy, you know, from Faster Pussycat and Ricky Rackman, right? And <clears throat> um, <clears throat> Ricky ended up just sort of taking it over, I guess, because Tammy was starting to uh, be a rock star and stuff. Um, and and tour and all that um it's weird like i have that tone about the cat house because uh like to me the cat house um what what from my experience right of like what the metal years movie was to this to the to the music and the scene i felt like the cat house was that to the clubs it was a thing that sort of jumped on saw an opportunity of course and like Ricky's great. And like my band's uh, cat house would go into the nineties as well. And my band soul, my next band would end up playing the cat house a few times. And, but it was certainly the place where, uh, if you were like, I remember a lot of people from orange County and stuff coming up to the cat house. It was, it was Tuesday, it was Tuesday nights. And, um, there would be like, you know, guys from guns and roses would be there. Or if there were uh, bands that were touring, um, there was such a buzz about that Hollywood scene. And that was like the spot, you know, to go if, if it wasn't like the rainbow had been around forever, but the cat house represented that really cool new scene that all those bands had kind of created out of thin air and a couple of Hanoi rocks records. (laughs) (laughs) It's the kind of club that couldn't exist today. And if it did, it would have to be underground and they would have to take your cameras and make sure that uh, you didn't walk inside (laughs) with a cell phone. I mean, can you imagine if people had cell phones with video uh, cameras back then? No, I can't because (laughs) I I don't see how, I don't see how the two things would even work together. You know, Uh it's like, cause the culture of all that is so much bigger than any kind of real in-person thing that we would all do right like go to a place where everybody meets and sees this super exciting fucking art form of 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 you know some new rock band or whatever it was like i try to i talk about stuff with my daughter who's just turned 14 um and she's so unimpressed you know with like (laughs) Oh, that's not, that's, that's cool. Like something will come on TV and I'll be like, babe, you know, I actually, I played there, you know, I played there that place. And, um, she, oh, that's, that's, oh, that's great. 
you know, or whatever. And, but, but this person on TikTok is really exciting, you know? <laughs> um, um, well, dude, I have monopolized too much of your time as I continue my nerd outs on glam metal from the eighties. Um, but, uh, <laughs> I'm just so fucking excited that I got a chance to talk to you today on the Brando cast. So all I want to say is fucking thank you to me. Me too. Thank you. It's, it's so fun. And again, like I think every time we get off the phone with this kind of stuff, and by the way, this is like, anytime y'all want to just jump on me and Brandon's phone calls, this is all, this is how it goes. Anyway. <laughs> this is, this is just me and Brandon on the phone on like some Saturday afternoon. But, but Thank you. Well, I'm, yeah. I'm jealous. I'm jealous. You got to experience. You got to experience some of the madness, you know, and, and the rest of us could only read about it in the magazines and see a little bit of it, in, you know, in the Decline 2 movie. But it just seemed like a mythical place, mm -hmm. but it wasn't. It's a real small town filled with mm -hmm. people who are, you know, trying to bust their ass to just get something fucking going. Right? Right. That's right. Did anyone, were you surprised by anyone's success? Or was there someone out there that you thought like they should have made it, but they didn't? Mm. <laughs> if I could be so selfish, I, uh, this is later, but my, my 90s band, Soul, like mm -hmm. I, I, I'll run into people to this day like, oh, God, you guys should have blah, 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 you know? Right. Um, and circumstances and things and, and timing and the planets lining up and everything that it takes, you know? Uh, like you talk about like Duff and Slash and Axel and Izzy and Steven Adler all getting together like that is planets lining up you know i don't care yep. who you are that's you're not going to deny that but yeah there was uh I'll, I'll just think there was there was a band called the joneses that we mentioned for a second i thought they were they were just so good they were um they were a kind of a crossover from from that early 80s punk scene i'm just remembering now paul black was the drummer who he was the original singer for la guns and he had been in a band called, what are they called? Like the Mau Mau's or something like that. They were like a punk band um, in the early 80s. So they were kind of blurring that line, you know, uh, by by coming out. And so the Joneses, there was a band called VVSI that I think about that. I, I wish there was more more recorded stuff. Do you know what VVSI is? Apparently it's like no. how you it's how you measure the cut on a diamond or something. Okay. And uh, so... <laughs> Uh, <laughs> this, you, you would have absolutely loved VVSI. I think there's some demos tapes online, but, um, it's a VVSI and the, they had a guitar player named, uh, Dennis Chick, I think was his name, which I don't know what his real last name was, but, um, he was like this, uh, really good looking Mexican kid with like long feathered hair. And he was like the new Eddie on the scene. He was like this phenomenon a uh, virtuoso guitar player guy wielding this les paul around with all his big bouncy brown hair that was so cool and um they were uh they were like kind of a musician's favorite and and the, and they 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 again I, I keep going back to the early iron maiden stuff like that paul diano iron maiden stuff they had that vibe real strong which was kind of like i don't think maiden had completely come into their metalness yet you know, at that point, they were sort of trying to figure, almost like how Priest took him a minute, you know? So VVSI was rad. Um, oh, my God. Uh, Red Cross. Uh, ah, right. Yes, yes, yes. I think Red Cross, like, I feel like yeah. they could have been, I mean, I associate them with, they were a punk rock band. That's a perfect example. They were in punk rock circles. And suddenly, over a few years, these guys were still playing, and their hair had grown out long. And... One of the first shows I ever saw at the country club was Red Cross headlining. And I want to say like it was somebody, oh, some silly metal band, I think called Pandemonium. I think they played. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But, but, and Poison was the opening band. Oh. And it was one of their early gigs. And it was with their first guitar player, this guy, Matt, that was, they had a different guitar player originally. And um, Poison played Strutter that night uh, by Kiss, which I just thought was so uh, it was so unusual because Kiss was kind of hit, you know, forgotten, a bit forgotten, or at least the the seventies era of Kiss. And uh, Red Cross, I'll never forget. They they came out and they were announced as like, um, "You wanted the best, you got the best. The hottest band in the land, 
kiss. <laughs> and, <laughs> and then they, they go into deuce. And I mean, I know it sounds like silly, but like, I remember something clicked. I'm like, okay, now there's like a tongue in cheek kind of honoring something that's amazing. And those guys are big kiss fans. If you, if you'll ever, you know, know about those guys, but coming out and kind of taking the piss out of it, but also honoring it, you know? And I think that had a lot to do that. That was, I think the felt like that was like kind of the bedrock for the culture of that, that thing that was going to happen, you know, like bands like that, that kind of said, okay, some of this stuff is behind us now. So get out your old Aerosmith records again. uh, And, and let's, let's do something like real again, you know? And I, I, that's what I don't know. I, that's what I, I felt like. There was something inventive and retro at the same time that was happening. You know, yeah. amazing, um, dude. Thank you. You rule, man. Thank you. Uh, you rule. And to the rest of you, thank you so much for liking, listening, subscribing, telling your friends about the fucking Brando cast. So many great guests coming down the pike, but um, I can't wait till we do part three, where we talk about uh, current day Iron Maiden. I don't know. And, of course, the Brando cast is produced by Mr. Richard Sheltinga. So until the next time, cats and kittens. We just got back from the best